Good evening, everyone, and welcome to the LSE for tonight's event. My name is Sita Pena Gangadaran, and I'm a new assistant professor in the Department of Media and Communications here at the London School of Economics, where I am also acting director of the Media Policy Project. For those of you who may not be familiar with the Media Policy Project, our goal is to spark conversations between policymakers, civil society actors, media professionals, about the latest media research. We want policymakers to have timely, easy access to relevant research and to the range of views held by civil society. We also work to engage the policy community with research on the policymaking process itself. Additionally, we provide tools for anyone looking to stay up to date on media policy issues through our briefings, event calendars, dossiers, and lists of ongoing consultations. If you've looked recently at our site, you'll know we cover a broad range of media policy topics, such as internet governance, net neutrality, surveillance, data protection, digital single market, and children in the media, as well as the ongoing debate on press regulation. We provide a platform for debate and exchange and encourage our students in LSE's Department of Media and Communications to get involved in our work as we build bridges between academia and civil society. Since our launch in 2010, our focus has primarily been in the United Kingdom and Europe, though we feature issues and topics relevant to a global audience. Under my tenure as acting director, we will continue this focus and I do hope to broaden our international angle, by which I don't just mean more coverage of and engagement with U.S. media policy, but also with the Global South, places like Brazil, India, the Philippines, and more. A few practicalities before we begin. For the Twitter able in the audience, the hashtag for today's event is hashtag LSE Impress. Second, I would ask uh, that you please put your phones on silent so as to not disrupt the event. Third, this event is being recorded and will hopefully be made available as a podcast which will be posted online subject to no to technical difficulties. And most importantly, we will host a post-events drink reception to which you are all invited so that we can continue the conversation and that will take place upstairs on the second floor and we'll have some people um, available to direct you at the conclusion of the event. And now to the reason we're all here tonight. I'm very pleased to welcome Walter Merricks from Impress to the LSE today to deliver a lecture on Impress and the future of UK press regulation. Walter Merricks trained as a solicitor before serving as the first director of the Camden Law Center. He joined the Law Society, which functioned as the solicitor's regulator in 1985, and in 1996 he worked as an ombudsman, most prominently as the first chief ombudsman of the Financial Ombudsman Service, with responsibility for an organization of 1,500 staff and a £90 million budget. He is a member of the Gambling Commission and has been involved in dispute resolution and regulation in the fields of legal services, healthcare, insurance, energy, and intellectual property, among others. 
He has also worked as a legal journalist and as an academic. In short, his regulatory experience runs far and deep. He is now the chair designate, designate of the Board of Impress, an organization which, according to its website, describes itself as a blazing, as blazing a trail for a fair, better kind of press regulation. Impress was established in 2013 in the wake of the Levison Inquiry, an inquiry which was prompted by the News of the World phone hacking scandal. The report of the Levison Inquiry was a critical moment in the history of UK press, in the history of the UK press. And the question of how precisely to design an effective and independent system of self-regulation is still being fought over today. As someone who has occasionally watched these debates from uh, across the pond, I have found them fascinating, rapidly evolving, sometimes confusing, and critically important. And I'm sure we are all uh, looking forward to hearing from Walter how his organization intends to address some of the problems identified in the Levison report. As usual, after the lecture, there will be a chance for you to put your questions to Walter, but for now, Will you please join me in welcoming Walter to deliver his lecture? Well, thank you very much, Sita. Uh, and thank you all for coming to this uh, event. Um, the title that uh, I've been given, The Future of Press Regulation, uh, is rather a portentous title. And if you're expecting me to lay out in detail what the actual future of press regulation in the UK is going to look like in the next five or ten years, well, I, I probably have to disappoint you. No one can really say with certainty what the future will hold in this field. It is, to say the least, quite contentious. One can only say with some confidence that the future landscape won't look like the past and it won't look like the present. And one of the reasons it won't look like the present is because of the advent of impress. There are, of course, many other reasons. The world of journalism and news publishing is changing rapidly. The proportion of people who get their daily news from printed newspapers is declining every day. In fact, even the notion that people get their daily news is already an outdated concept. We're all consuming information, not necessarily what we might define as news, uh, from uh, a variety of uh, increasingly diverse sources, from online news sites uh, to global media giants. And this information is both immediate and changing all the time. Digital media, social media, broadcast media are rapidly eroding what used to be the primacy of hard copy national news. And to protect themselves, these national newspapers have ventured into the digital space with varying degrees of success, some behind paywalls, but whether any can really make sufficient money from ads or subscriptions to turn a lasting profit is probably doubtful. And the increasing use by readers of ad-blocking software is posing a serious threat to the business model of online publishing. So this is a challenging time for the press. 
Many local and regional titles have disappeared. Others are fragile. I still read a daily printed newspaper over my breakfast every day. But most people in this country now get their news online. And significantly, they're not paying the news publisher directly for this. Instead, a lot of the money is going to the mobile phone companies, the broadband providers, the search engines, and the social media platforms. At the same time, I think there are reasons for optimism. Just as the Internet has disrupted the familiar business model for newspapers, it's created new opportunities. In this country, we have a great tradition of a vibrant and innovative press. And across the UK, the small independent publishing publishers are creating new titles, both online and in print, to meet the public hunger for good journalism. Now, actually, I think I need to move that. Yes, there we go. Uh, you can see there's a, a, a uh, substantial number of um, uh, these, uh, these local publishers, hyper-locals hyper they're known as. Um, they're a radical new force in the British media. And estimates of the number of hyper-local sites varies from 400 to more than 2,000. Uh, around six and a half million people uh, have visited or visited a, a hyperlocal site once a week. About half of hyperlocals have published investigative journalism in the last two years, and more than two thirds have campaigned on local issues. And advertising expenditure on hyperlocals adds up to £23 million annually. I think that's a great indication of the health and vibrancy of this sector. Now, hyperlocals and new publishers are part of the future of British journalism. And I'm pleased to announce that the first members of Impress uh, include hyperlocals like the Caerphilly Observer, which you can see its website here. It also publishes in print. The Port Talbot Magnet in South Wales, whose uh, editor, Rachel, uh, you can see Rachel Howells, uh, gives us a nice quote, independent regulation means we can continue carrying out robust journalism for the public good enables us to be taken seriously. The Lincolnite, uh, in, uh, in, as it might, you might suggest, in, in the East Midlands. And you can see what Daniel Ionescu said about uh, his view of being regulated by us. <laughs> This is in a little bit of stone in uh, Staffordshire, uh, covering events in and around the market town of Stone. Um, on the white, the Isle of Wight, 
covers news in around the Isle of Wight, probably the most innovative uh, publisher there. And see what Simon Perry said. Hyperlocal news publishers can be vulnerable to attempts to stifle news uh, through threats of legal action. And anything that uh, can be done to help tackle that bullying has to be welcomed. We've got more. The Southport Reporter. View Digital uh, in Northern Ireland. Your Thurrock. Byline, uh, an investigative reporting platform. And the Ferret, which operates in Scotland as a, in a very similar way. Look at that story. Uh, good, uh, good campaigning journalism there. News, New Internationalist, um, been around for 40 years, important news magazine. I'll come on to that in a minute. There are about 30 other publishers have already said that they're interested in joining us. Some we're in discussion with, uh, and others would prefer to wait until we've been recognised, and that's absolutely fine. Whilst we'll re regulate these titles robustly, we'll also support them in their desire for truly great journalism. That's what makes Impress distinctive. The business of news and information is a rapidly evolving market. At the same time, the appetite and the need for original journalism and investigative reporting remains strong and has arguably never been stronger. And of course the risks that come with that can be substantial. Publishers and individual journalists need protection from the risks they face. There's always the possibility of targeting the wrong person, developing a story on sources that turn out to be unsupported, or omitting key facts that would change the fairness of a report. Equally, those who've been victims of shoddy or malicious journalism or well-intentioned errors need to know they have someone or somewhere they can turn to. News organizations, therefore, large and small, need, to need an efficient, cost-effective and impartial body to help resolve complaints. There's never been a greater need for modern, authoritative, transparent, fair and impartial complaint handling and regulation. And as it happens, as Sita kindly mentioned, uh, I have been, uh, I have spent the last 20 years of my professional life uh, in the development of modern, authoritative, transparent, fair and impartial complaint handling and regulation. After a career that uh, included being an academic lawyer and a legal journalist and then working for the Law Society, I became the insurance ombudsman. This was the first scheme in the UK uh, to develop an independent self-regulatory system for resolving complaints between consumers and businesses. Interestingly, it was the insurers who took the in initiative, aware that the courts and the judicial system were hopelessly designed to deal with disputes involving ordinary people. The legal 
and court costs are prohibitive and potentially ruinous for individuals or small businesses. So, with the help of the Consumers Association, they jointly designed a scheme that largely kept the lawyers out, but where organizations, such as insurers, that had deep pockets gained no advantage against the individual and leveled the playing field, therefore, between firms and consumers. And the model that they came up with allowed consumers to take a claim cost-free and risk-free to an independent authority. And that has been very widely followed. When the insurance scheme was joined up with those for banking, building societies, investment firms, and stock brokers, I became head of the first, first head of the Financial Ombudsman Service, which became the largest scheme in the world. It's much larger now. During my time, I was responsible for key decisions, awarding compensation to half a million consumers for missold mortgage endowments, to thousands following the equitable life collapse, and then to many, many more uh, following the mis-selling of PPI compensation that's now costing the banks, or the, the whole banking sector, some £26 billion and counting. And that, by the way, of course, is a fraction of the profits that the banks actually made from selling PPI. Well, apart from financial services, we take for granted the existence of ombudsman schemes in a whole variety of other fields. Phone companies, internet service providers, energy companies, estate agency and surveying, removal firms, higher education, legal professionals, copyright licensing, and hundreds of smaller areas. I've worked with many of these schemes which all now have to comply with standards for independence and effectiveness. Well, let me take stock of this. I think we can, take, we can see two important features here. First, that members of the public who have a dispute are not expected to have to take a court case against the company responsible for the loss or damage that they've suffered in order to obtain justice. And second, that where the scheme is managed by a trade, professional, or industry body that represents its members, what we might call a self-regulatory body, it's subject to oversight and approval to ensure that it is independent. This need for justified confidence and credibility also applies to rulemaking self-regulatory bodies. The modern approach is that they're supervised or approved by an oversight body. The self-regulators for solicitors and barristers are, and, oh, sorry, we've got some, um, uh, some other um, independent adjudicators here, an ombudsman. Solicitors and barristers are supervised by the Legal, legal Services Board or the self-regulators for them. Uh, here are the health professionals, um, doctors, nurses, dentists, uh, and social workers. Their um, self-regulatory bodies are approved and overseen by the Professional Standards Authority. The uh, accountancy, actuarial, and auditing profession are overseen by the Financial Reporting Council. 
and even judges are um, subject to the Judicial Conduct and Investigation Office. So whether we're talking about pure complaint handlers, ombudsman schemes, or industry self-regulators, the public is rightly mistrustful of bodies that claim to police themselves but refuse to be accountable for what they do or how they do it. So there's now hardly any significant trade or professional body that claims to regulate its members or to handle public complaints that doesn't have some external oversight or accountability relationship, except for the press. So given this modern approach to what one would call accountable self-regulation, it was hardly surprising that this was what was established in an authoritative charter following the Leveson report. The press is to be governed by self-regulatory bodies that are overseen and approved by a body established for the purpose. It's called the Press Recognition Panel. There it is. Uh, and that body is to ensure that any self-regulatory organization is truly independent and can justifiably claim to deserve public confidence. And that's why I announced last year that we would be applying to the recognition panel for approval of our scheme. As John Whittingdale, that's him, uh, the Secretary of State for Culture, Media and Sport recently said, the panel is key to delivering the Leverson reforms, assuring that press regulators are independent and effective, properly funded and able to protect the public. It's taken us a while to complete our application for recognition, but I'm pleased to say that earlier today we delivered it to the panel together with the 40 files of supporting evidence. This is an important moment for us and one which has taken a lot of hard work to achieve. We believe that we meet the 23 criteria for recognition and we will now wait to see if the panel accepts that we are independent and effective, properly funded and able to protect the public. That's why we say that Impress will be the first and maybe the only independent press regulator in the UK. So now let me tell you a, bit, a little bit about how we'll work. Well, as you'd expect, for anyone with a grievance, we'll be open to receive complaints about, about publishers that join us only after the publisher has had a chance within 21 days to respond to the matter. And then we'll decide whether the complaint is justified. And if it is, we can require an apology or correction to be printed, what that correction should say, whereabouts in the publication it should appear, uh, and in the case of a website, for how long. And we'll publish the results of our decisions on our website. We won't award people compensation, even if their feelings have been hurt. And where something more serious is alleged, a complainant may say that embargoed, sorry, that, uh, may say that uh, published material has been defamatory or that it or the way it was obtained constituted a breach of privacy. Now those are civil wrongs and courts can award co compensation 
for defamation or breach of privacy. Now, as I've, as I've mentioned, in my view, the courts and the legal system are wholly unsuitable and potentially ruinous for individuals or indeed small organizations involved in such cases. So our scheme requires that if requested by a complainant, our publishers must cooperate in such disputes being resolved by arbitration. And in partnership with one of the most respected bodies in the field, the Chartered Institute of Arbitrators, we've designed a simple arbitration scheme. It can be scary for a small publisher pursuing an investigative inquiry into the affairs of a powerful organization or individual to be threatened with a libel action. Faced with this sort of bullying intimidation, the options are either to drop the investigation or to brave it out and risk bankruptcy. Leveson and the Charter have a solution for the small publisher. It is to say that regulated publishers, that is ones that join a self-regulatory body that's approved, should offer arbitration to resolve this sort of claim and aggressive claimants who refuse to use the arbitration that's offered and threaten to take the regulated publisher to court shouldn't be able to recover legal costs even if they win. Now that would nullify the intimidation threats. Now that costs rule is contained in section 40 of the Crime and Courts Act, a provision that's on the statute book but hasn't yet been brought into force by Culture Secretary John Whittingdale. He says he's thinking about it. Section 40 would have another benefit. It would allow people who bring a defamation or privacy case against the publisher, which is not independently regulated, uh, to claim back their costs whether they win or lose. Now, Kate and Jerry McCann of them, yes, uh, recently had to take the Sunday Times to court about false reports it made about them. After having to fight a court case, they said, despite the, admitted his the history of admitted libels in respect of our family by so many newspapers, the Sunday Times still felt able to print an indefensible front-page story and then force us to instruct lawyers and even to start court proceedings before it behaved reasonably. They went on. This is exactly why Parliament and Leveson called for truly effective independent self-regulation of newspapers to protect ordinary members of the public from this sort of abuse. The fact is that most families couldn't, have, couldn't take the financial and legal risk of going to the high court and facing down a big press bully as we have. That is why News UK and the big newspaper publishers have opposed Leveson's reforms and the arbitration scheme, which is a necessary part of it. That's the end of that quote from Kate and Jerry McCann. At this moment, Impress is the only body with any prospect of becoming a recognized regulator and therefore offering these protections. Now it's worth saying 
that a number of major newspaper publishers seem particularly worried by these as yet unimplemented cost provisions. Trinity Mirror, publisher of the Daily and Sunday Mirror, for example, said that a, quote, disturbing, chilling effect on freedom of speech would occur if a financially vulnerable publisher was forced to join an approved regulator about which it had concerns for the sole reason of avoiding the devastating effect of damages and cost sanctions. Well, we'd be pleased to talk to Trinity Mirror to allay any concerns it might have about joining us. And Associated Newspapers, publishers of the mail titles, said that what it called these penal cost provisions would contravene the right to freedom of expression. Well, now these colorful protestations just remind me of the huge furore and resistance that the legal profession and the judiciary put up in 1990 when the government presented some very modest reforms to make the profession more accountable. The Lord Chief Justice of the time went completely off the deep end saying that the proposals represented the most sinister document that had ever emerged from government. Opposition, he said, does not stand on the doorstep with a toothbrush moustache and a swastika armband. People facing even modest change can whip themselves up into such a frenzy that they obscure the sometimes valid points that they could be making. We, too, stand for freedom of expression, and we'd like nothing more to work with these publishers. Our doors and our minds are open. But as yet, these cost provisions in Section 40 haven't been brought into force. I can understand why John Whittingdale is thinking hard about whether to do so. As chair of Impress, I would like to see the cost protections for small publishers who join us brought in. As a long-time law reformer, I would like to see people with privacy or defamation claims enabled to use a risk-free out-of-court scheme to have their disputes and not be placed in the position that the McCanns were. Well, let's go on to recognition. In order to be recognized, we have to fulfill the criteria of independence in relation to appointment and funding. So let me tell you about that now. I and my fellow board members, a number of whom are here tonight, uh, have been appointed by an independent appointments panel followed by, uh, following an open recruitment process. No one tapped me on the shoulder or asked me to apply. I saw the ad and I applied because I was really interested. How, you may ask, have we been funded and is our funding secure? Well, I think that's not an unreasonable question. We're certainly an unusual self-regulator. Most regulators are funded either from public funds, like the Food Standards Agency, which is funded out of taxation, or from fees from the bodies being regulated, like the Gambling Commission, of which I'm a member. 
Impress has had to bring itself into existence without any public funds or regulatory fees. Now, who would have an interest in funding or promoting a press regulator? There are some non-profit foundations, like the uh, Joseph Roundtree Reform Trust and the Andrew Wainwright Reform Trust, which have supported us as part of their commitment to a vibrant and fair society. There are also many individuals who share this vision. Many people contributed to our initial crowdfunding appeals. Some people, uh, like J.K. Rowling and Max Mosley, have both the reason and the resources to support decent standards of journalism, and we are grateful to them for helping to get impress off the ground. But we can't and won't be beholden to anyone, and we can't allow ourselves to be in a position where our funding could be removed if we offended a funder. So an independent body has been created. It's called the Independent Press Regulation Trust, which is a charity. Its trustees are professionals with experience of law, fund management, and the running of charitable trusts. Hold on a second. Its aim, that's the Independent Press Regulation Trust, is to promote high standards of ethical conduct and best practice in journalism. And it's empowered to provide, and I quote here, financial assistance towards the establishment and support of an independent press regulator or independent press regulators, note the plural, to be established and conducted in accordance with the recommendations and principles set out in the Leveson Report. Now, this body acts uh, and operates at arm's length as a buffer between any donor from whom it receives funds and any self-regulator like ourselves that applies to it. <coughs> to be clear, the funding from the trust could be available to any other self-regulator. The funding agreement that we have in place with the trust guarantees a funding of £950,000 a year for at least four years. This funding could only be ended during this period in extreme specified circumstances such as the bankruptcy of our organisation. In three or four years' time, we could reasonably expect to be self-sustaining from a mix of charitable grants from the trust and others and regulatory fee income. This funding we have in place will allow small publishers to join us at very modest cost. For the smallest, it's just £50 a year. And for those publishers, we'll be able to subsidise the cost of any arbitration that may be needed. Now on to a code. To regulate publishers, we must adopt a standards code. The Charter makes specific reference to a regulator having as its initial code of practice 
the editor's code of practice. Now, this editor's code of practice has been built up over the years by editors of the national, local, and magazine sectors, and it's been adopted by IPSO, a regulator to which most of the mainstream press belong, although significantly the Guardian, the Independent, and the Financial Times do not. It's the code that's taught to students in journalism schools, and it's been the subject of all sorts of interesting analysis and comment. It's freely available on the website of IPSO and of the body that drafts it, uh, the Editor's Code Committee. Its principles cover accuracy, privacy, harassment, intrusion into grief or shock, reports about children, the use of clandestine devices and subterfuge, and a number of other areas. And in a number of these areas, there are public interest exceptions. Now, you might think that those who developed this code would be proud of it and want us to use it. But no, the body that funds stands behind and controls the, ru the rules of IPSO claims copyright in this code. It has offered to license the code to us only on the condition that we do nothing that contradicts or is otherwise inconsistent with any application of the ed editor's code by IPSO. In other words, only on condition that we sacrifice our autonomy and independence. Now, does this move have any shred of public interest justification? Or is it just an attempt to obstruct us getting off the ground? Members of the House of Lords Communications Committee certainly seem to think so, as did members of the House of Commons Culture Committee in hearings last year. Even Ipso's own chairman, Sir Alan Moses, agreed when he was asked about it by both committees, he said he thought it would be absurd uh, to pre prevent us using the code. Good though the editor's code may be, uh, there are caps. For instance, in the past few years, a number of journalists have been arrested by the police, and I have to say in the main acquitted, after paying sources for official information. And it was their publishers who handed over their confidential sources to the police. Now, the code has little to say to publishers and journalists on these issues. We've recently analyzed the codes used in 50 other countries around the world, and there are at least 30 issues that other countries regard as important but aren't in the editor's code. So we won't be using it for very long, and I can announce tonight that we plan to develop our own we'll shortly be launching a consultation on what ought to be included in a new code. And apart from our member publishers, uh, sorry, input from our member publishers will be important. And we won't claim copyright. We'll be delighted if others choose to use our code. So where are we now? We have a strong team in place under Jonathan Haywood, our chief executive, the man whose idea Impress was. Ed Proctor is our chief operating officer, currently completing his term as chief executive 
of sport resolutions, the dispute, dispute resolver for sport in the UK, and we're supported by a policy and complaints officer, a company secretary, and head of business development. I'm also delighted to announce that we've just appointed, or just two, uh, two new board members have just been appointed and are joining us. Uh, Martin Hickman, in the front row here, former deputy news editor of The Independent and Westminster correspondent for the Press Association. He's co-author of a best-selling book about the phone hacking scandal, Dial M for Murdoch, and runs his own publishing company. And Emma Jones, uh, former columnist at The Sun and a news and features writer at The Sunday Mirror. She worked her way up to become deputy editor of the bizarre showbiz column at The Sun and claims the distinction of having been sacked by Rebecca Brooks. Uh, Not alone, I think. So what's our strategy at Impress? We aim to build membership up from the ground, from the ground up, working with hyperlocal and other niche, niche publications first. In addition to our independent Leveson compliant approach, the attraction for small, small, smaller news organizations is that Impress is cheaper. Our fees are transparent and banded according to turnover. We see a role for a new independent regulator, even if John Whittingdale decides not to implement Section 40 for the time being, although it's obvious that the protection that we could offer small publishers would be dramatically strengthened if he does. But we prefer that publishers see Impress as a destination of choice, an organization they want to be part of, rather than one they feel they have to join out of fear. We expect to work in a supportive way with our publishers. We'll be totally independent when adjudicating on a complaint, but we'll be happy to give journalists and publishers without prejudice advice if they're uncertain as to what to do. That advice won't influence the outcome of a complaint because by then we'll have heard both sides of the story. Impress wants to help publishers tell their stories and we want to assist the emerging network of hyperlocal sites to grow within a strong ethical framework. For us, raising and supporting ethical standards of journalism isn't just a reactive job of dealing with complaints. Being a standards regulator isn't just about punishing transgressions. It's also about helping those being regulated to get it right first time as our members have told us they want to do. We look forward to following the stories, investigations, and campaigns our members are running, watching their sites, reading their copy. So that by the time a complainant contacts us, it's very likely that we'll have a good idea what they're talking about. We aim to be at the heart of a network of publishers, journalists, unions, academics, trainers, researchers, and businesses sharing best practice and cultivating excellence. Do we expect those major publishers outside Ipso, The Guardian, The Independent, and The Financial Times to join us? Well, it is, of course, significant that they haven't joined Ipso. They will be very welcome to join us, but I understand why, however distinguished our board 
However impressive our team, they're wary of joining a regulatory body with no corporate track record of press regulation and it hasn't been recognized officially yet. Whether and for how long they will feel comfortable regulating themselves, only time will tell. We'll be there for them if one day they need us. Where do we stand in these heated debates about press regulation? Well, we share an interest with the Media Standards Trust, the National Union of Journalists, the LSE Media Policy Project, uh, and many other groups in wanting to prevent a a repeat of the scandals that triggered the Lewiston Inquiry. It's fair to say that we agree with Hacked Off that the charter framework of accountable self-regulation is the right model for future press regulation, as do the NUJ, Sir Harry Evans, and you should see the film about the Philadelphia scandal that he exposed, uh, the free speech body Article 19, and the government, and all parties in Parliament, all are committed to that framework of accountable self-regulation. Most of the national newspaper titles have so far rejected the Charter Framework. As we begin the process of bringing the framework to life with our recognition application, things will begin to stir. How fast, how far, we shall see. So finally, what does the future look like for Impress? We aim for the Impress mark to become a trusted and recognized brand in ethical journalism. At the same time, Impress-regulated publications will be seen by readers and the public as standout trustworthy titles. Impress publications should attract innovative editors and reporters. A true measure of our success may be when advertisers understand the commercial value of the Impress mark and are prepared to pay more for space in publications that carry it. I said at the start of this this lecture that the future of press regulation in the UK won't look like the present. My prediction is that alongside the myriad of other forces at work, commercial, technological, social and political, the advent of impress will be seen as having made a significant impact. Just how far that impact will reverberate, I will not dare to predict. I will leave that assessment to you. Thank you very much for listening. Thanks so much for your lecture. Um, We'll now open the floor to questions from the audience. Uh, And just a few ground rules. If you can let us know your name and affiliation and wait for the stewards with the roving microphone to get to you, that would be very helpful. Um, I will take questions in batches of three just to um, sort of facilitate things. Um, But I actually wanted to take moderator's um, prerogative and ask a question. Um, that actually uh, ties into how you concluded your lecture, um, thinking actually about the historic role that impress uh, may play 
And so I'm thinking about your comments and how this debate on UK press regulation has uh, unfolded, and it reminds me of uh, a historic moment in U.S. press history uh, where I think um, norms of press freedom, press independence, were really established, and that was with the publication of the Hutchins Commission report and the development of a self-regulatory scheme uh, really took root in the United States. That is to say, a lot of media historians are known for arguing that press freedom wasn't a natural occurrence. It's something that happened as a result of a particular moment. And so I'm thinking 50 years from now, right, when the landscape for news media has changed even more dramatically than as you described, um, what will the history of... uh, what will the annals of history say about impress and its role in shaping the field of UK press history or UK press? Well, it's an easy one. <laughs> Fifty years, you want me to forecast? I, I don't think I can forecast three or four. Um, no, I mean, this is... There are so many forces at work in changing the... Uh, in affecting and uh, the dynamics of press... Of the, of the press, uh, the outlets, the, uh, the pressures, um, the appetite um, for, for news. I, I think we can, we can say there will still be something that we recognise as news, um, as distinct from just gossip or information. Um, but what, what the structure for... Um, what, how how the, the, all those... Um, Forces will have impacted on the newspapers themselves or the news outlets themselves um, uh, is, is, of course, <laughs> extraordinarily difficult to predict, and therefore um, the regulatory regime around them. I talked about, in this lecture, I talked about the modern approach uh, to regulation and self-regulation. Um, uh, that is the model that is... Uh, it is the right one for today and it's probably going to be the right one for the next 20 years um, 50 years time uh, all bets are off great I'm sure we could have more conversation about that but let me open up the floor to question and answer so we'll take three questions um, to the left over here in the front in the second row in, in the back Thanks. Steve Barnett, University of Westminster. Um, For those of us who have been involved in following this issue and campaigning, in my case, for at least 20 years, um, this is a game-changer. I have absolutely no doubt about that. Um, uh, Post the last inquiry, which was Calcutt in 1993, uh, it was clear that the the press regulatory system, which was set up in the wake of the scandals then, uh, wasn't going to work. The government did nothing, and uh, we saw what happened as a result of that with the phone hacking scandal. Um, and I think the appearance of a uh, an effective and independent regulator, which now exists, uh, is something which is unique in British press history, and I've no doubt it will make a huge difference. Uh, that's my answer to your, the chair's question. Um, I, my question is this. Um, Walter, could, could you say a little bit more about what the 
the regulatory funding companies' approach to the editor's code of practices. Um, you, as you say, both uh, houses, select committees, uh, found it pretty absurd um, what they were trying to do in copywriting it. But what exactly did they say to you in terms of, I didn't quite catch this thing about you, you can have it, they'll license it to you as long as you treat it properly or whatever. Can you say a bit more about that? And also, your process of then trying to develop a new code, how does that then fit with the process of recognition? Because you've put your documentation in, so are you going to have an ongoing conversation with the recognition panel as you consult on your new code and develop it further? Okay, we'll have the question, sorry, <laughs> down in the front. Hello, um, my name is Caroline Edgerton. I work for our local Citizens Advice Bureau, and I'm a great admirer of the Ombudsman's services, various, until they become overloaded, um, which the Financial Ombudsman Service has to some extent. It's been taking a long time to get complaints dealt with, um, partly because of PPI. Yeah. Um, there have been huge numbers of very similar claims, but it means that other complaints sometimes don't get, you know, more complex complaints may not get dealt with very fast. Um, I wonder in an information service if you aren't frightened of total overload in terms of complaints brought by individuals who, are, who feel aggrieved. Great, and the question in the back, please. Hello, my name's Tom Murdoch. I'm a um, um, a charity lawyer at Stone King. Um, Walter, I wonder if you could... Um, I was tremendously encouraged to see the large number of hyperlocals you've encouraged to join. I think that's fantastic. And uh, in the context of the changing way, as you say, in which we get our news, I think that's really important. Um, as someone who works with charities a lot, I'd be very interested to know your thoughts, please, on how you see perhaps a kite mark being developed for standards for particularly hyperlocal publishers and how they might differ from their needs might differ from those of perhaps more conventional publishers. Right, well, I'll start with Steve. The, um, the conversation we've had with the regulatory funding company, that's the body that stands behind IPSO, funds IPSO, uh, controls the rules of IPSO, um, uh, and uh, claims copyright in the code. Uh, they've, um, they've, said that not, they've, they've said that we could have a license. They've said that they wouldn't charge us uh, for the license, but they say that uh, the, the conditions on which we would be allowed to use their license uh, would be uh, that uh, we would have to observe um, all the, the decisions that IPSO itself makes. We wouldn't be able to depart from uh, the lines of uh, decision-making that they've uh, adopted, uh, which I think ties our hands and means we can't use it freely. Um, however, uh, we will be using it initially, um, uh, it's publicly available on, uh, on, it, on the uh, website, and our, um, uh, our legal advice is uh, that once it's publicly available on a website, uh, it's available to anybody to look at. Uh, and given that that's the case, we don't think that we're going to need a license uh, to do what we're going to do. Um, and as we develop a new code, of course, uh, if and when we adopt a new code, uh, then we'll have to be in touch with the uh, press recognition panel because they'll have to have a look at it and make sure that it's a code that's fit for purpose. Um, so that's where we are. Um, 
overload. Um, uh, I, I, I recognise uh, the frustration you've experienced in uh, advising clients and de- helping them uh, taking cases through the Financial Ombudsman Service. I have to say I left the Financial Ombudsman Service some time ago. Uh, I, too, was responsible for uh, situations when we were hit by huge, you know, huge waves of single-issue uh, uh, complaints. Uh, and uh, at that point, we had backlogs, undoubtedly. It was almost impossible to avoid. Um, we did t- do a number of things to try and mitigate the, the problem for consumers. Uh, as far as we're concerned in Impress, I think we'll be growing from a very small base um, and we'll be able to, uh, to moderate that. So we won't be uh, taking public, uh, complaints from the main national newspapers, which uh, you know, potentially generate quite a large number. Um, uh, we, we'll be gen- taking complaints from the publishers that, uh, who I've mentioned. Who I, you know, there will be complaints. They tell us they do uh, have complaints. Uh, that, and they would like to have uh, uh, a recourse that enables those complaints to be resolved independently. Um, they would naturally hope that they'll be found not to have breached any uh, aspect of, uh, of the standards in the code. Um, but if they are, if, if we find that they will have been, then at least they know they'll have been judged by an independent body uh, that meets proper standards and have been, has been properly uh, recognised. Um, as far as uh, ch- uh, the, the, ch- the impress uh, mark or kite mark, I think it will, it's a really, rather exciting development um, that um, this mark that you can see there um, is something that our publishers are going to be quite interested to have on, in their, on their website, in their, um, uh, in their printed publications. Um, which will be something that will distinguish it itself from, from other, um, other titles. So I hope that, I mean, I can't be sure they will, but that's what they've said to us. They're keen to have that, some, that kind of uh, distinguishing feature, uh, which I hope will then become more widely known and more widely recognised. Um, it's something that's... Um, uh, that, that, um, and, of course, it, we'd be required... It's in, important... Uh, that it goes along with a statement uh, that if a person has a complaint, uh, this is where they will be able to take it to. So uh, a mark uh, carries two purposes. One, it's a distinguishing uh, feature that people can be proud of, um, and the other is it serves a practical purpose for readers. We'll take three more questions. We have one in the front, sorry, and one in the side there. One in the back um, with the blue tie and one in the blue shirt. Hi, thanks. <coughs> Ivor Gaber, University of Sussex. Can I just say I'd, I'd think carefully about the kite mark. I think it looks like officially approved publication. So it could cut both ways. I would just hold back and reflect on that. That's not my question, but a piece of unasked for advice. Um, Steve says game changer. I say yes, but I don't believe it will be a game changer until you can get a major title or titles on board. I fear not 50 years' time, but in five years' time, if, it's, if you're still only recognizing hyperlocals, and I applaud that, you will not be seen as a game changer. And my third quick point question, you're thinking about a new code. 
enough codes, Ed. I think I'm a life member of the National Union of Journalists. I think we've got a very good code. I'm sure we wouldn't charge you for it, and I'm sure you could do what you like with it, but do look at it before you reinvent the wheel. Thank you. Sorry, gentleman in the blue tie. Uh, Peter Wright, Associated Newspapers. Um, Walter, um, fascinating talk. Um, you'll discover um, when you start um, looking at complaints that journalists are famously bad at maths. Um, but according to my calculations, uh, if you're charging a membership fee of £50 a year, your fee income in your first year will be about £600. Um, your budget is 950000 which is um, <clears throat> a massive difference. How much of the remaining 949,000-odd shortfall will be coming from Max Mosley? Down in the front with the blue shirt. Thanks. Uh, my name is Joe Mazor. I'm an assistant Sorry. professor. Sorry. I'm Joe Mazor. I'm a, an assistant professor in the government's and philosophy department here. Um, I work on media ethics. I was wondering um, how you're thinking about the issue of impartiality. Um, what kind of standards will you use uh, to, to evaluate those kinds of complaints? Okay. Um, think carefully about the, the, the kite mark. Um, I, don't know you, I don't know if it's the, de the design that you don't like or you don't, just don't think it works or you don't think... Oh, it's the principle. I see, right, okay. Well, we have thought about it quite a lot and, um, you know, I, th I, think, I think we've seen that sort of danger. I can't say we, we ha we haven't, we've uh, entirely dismissed the, the concern that you, you raised, um, but I think we think that on the... Uh, I mean, it will be... If our members, as so far, uh, they've, and we've only just started a recruitment of members, uh, the first dozen members we have now, but there are plenty more in the offing, uh, if the majority of them say, we don't really like this, um, or we want to use it in a different way, can we develop something different? Um, well, well, we'll listen to that. Um, will, we be a game, game, uh, will we be a game changer of the kind that uh, Steve Barnett says and hopes we will. Um, well, I don't know. Uh, you may, your comment is a, is a, a fair one. Um, we won't be a, a game changer if um, one of the major publishers doesn't join us. Well, there are three out there that uh, could. Uh, I've explained why I think it's quite reasonable for them not to have joined us up to the, uh, up to the time being. Uh, they have been criticised um, for, uh, not by me, but they have been criticised for uh, remaining outside the regulatory system of any kind, regulating themselves, how long that they'll feel comfortable doing that or will be able to resist the criticism that's made of that position, uh, one, one can't tell, but at least the, uh, the possibility remains there. Um, and we're not going to be put off by having to wait around uh, until that door suddenly opens um, we think the right thing to do is to get underway um, to bring this framework, this charter framework, alive. If we, weren't do if we were not making this application uh, today, uh, then the, uh, the whole of this 
uh, press regulation panel, the Royal Charter, or the associated instruments that go with it, they would all just still be lying there uh, in a way that, um, well, that Steve uh, talked about the many, many uh, attempts that have been in history uh, to, um, uh, to get this area right, and it would just be another one of those failed attempts. Um, uh, Sorry? Oh, yes, you did. Um, it's a lovely code of conduct, and we may well use it. Um, if, uh, thank you for, for that. Yes, I know that we have been offered it. Um, uh, we, uh, we do think there's a role for developing a new code. Um, now, if, again, if we, we'll, we'll embark on a public consultation. Um, uh, when, uh, if, the, if members of the NUJ and lots of other people say... Uh, we don't want this one, and we don't want a new one. Thank you very much. We'd much prefer the NUJ code. Well, we shall listen to that, and we'll see what the, uh, you know, what uh, what the balance of advantage li- where the balance of advantage lies. But yes, no, we're very aware of where the NUJ code is is there, and there are other good, very good codes around the world that we've we've uh, come across, and where people have said you could use our code if you want to. Um, but the the current the the Royal Charter does say. Uh, that the, or does expect that the initial code uh, that from a new regulator should be the editor's code. So that's where we're proposing to start. Um, funding um, is our how much how how we uh, how much of our money we're going to need um, to sustain ourselves over this period of time. I have to say, not all, uh, even our new publishers are only going to be paying fifty pounds a year. Some of them are considerably bigger than the uh, than the fifty pound a year. Uh, folk, um, so we will have, um, and I, in my view, we will develop uh, a substantial, a more substantial uh, level of regulatory fees in a couple of years' time. Quite how much we shall, how far we'll be dependent uh, on the grants from the trust is difficult to say. Um, what I can say, and what I did say, um, and what I think is important to uh, to reiterate. Uh, is that that money from the trust uh, is uh, not subject to withdrawal. Uh, the Mosley family, who've mainly put money into it, um, are not able to take it out again. It's beyond their reach. Um, uh, it is guaranteed to us. Um, so I don't really... I'm not embarrassed about uh, the fact that, that, that it's come through that. As long as there's a barrier and a buffer between us and, the fun- and any funder. That's... Um, well, I'm, as I say, I don't know what the gap will be or what it will turn out to be. That's what the question you asked me. Uh, well, as I say, in terms of regulatory fees, the, we, uh, as of today, um, I'm not quite sure what our regulatory fees would probably... Uh, they're certainly not very much. Um, uh, but in six months' time, a year's time, they'll amount to quite a you know, reasonable, reasonable pot of money. Um, I'm, we will have submitted to the um, to the press recognition panel a, um, a business plan. It will take us over the next four years, as we're required to do. And you'll have the chance to have a look at it. Well, as I said, the, the amount that we're uh, that 
we are guaranteed is £950,000. Uh, that has come uh, from the Mosley Family Trust into the trust, into the Independent Press Regulation Trust. So, all of that. And our question on media impartiality. Uh, sorry, yes. Your question is about impartiality. Um, how, uh, I'm not, would you like to just expand on that a little bit for me? Because I didn't uh, quite understand. Okay, now, when you printed out the own code of conduct, and I was wondering um, how are you going to define impartiality? Ah, impartiality in the code? Yes. Um, oh, I see. Um, Do you think it's going to be or not? Uh, I'm not sure that I think that uh, the press has to be impartial. It's interesting that broadcasters have to have um, an impartiality. Um, element to the way they express themselves, um, but I don't think the, the news, news outlets have, in this country have always had potentially had very partial positions. It's, probably, it's extremely obvious where they're coming from, uh, and if you can't spot where they're coming from, well, you, and you don't like it, well, just don't buy the paper or don't read it. Um, no, partiality is something that we, in, I think, enjoy and accept. Um, and, you know, as I say, if you don't like this stuff, don't read it. I don't think we're going to put that in, in our code. We can have another round of questions. I saw uh, Damien and someone in the front, in the second row, you had a question as well. Is there a third person that has a question? Thank you. Fascinating uh, talk, Walter. Before my question, just a, a clarification, because I thought I heard in your speech um, a, a passing reference to the Media Policy Project um, uh, as endorsing a particular position. The Media Policy Project just doesn't have a position. As a uh, one-time director of the Policy Project, I might have my personal view. CETA has plenty of others. Um, but the Policy Project doesn't have... A, a position. It's just a platform for other views. Very sorry. Yep, Please don't sue fine. us. Um, <laughs> um, but the, 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 the real point I wanted to make was about um, the, uh, the code. Um, and I understand the position in relation to the editor's code. Um, but I was intrigued when you said that you thought there were some particular deficiencies, particularly compared with other countries... Um, and I was interested in what these might be. Um, I also had a slight background concern, which is, in a sense, um, part of the reason to have a code is to clarify and unify sets of standards which are also understood by the wider public. And once we have a proliferation of codes, um, in a sense, we're undermining that process. Um, it may be that hyperlocals other countries um, uh, online, etc., should, should feed into a debate about what these, these kind of ethical principles and standards should be. Um, but I was wondering how you are planning to um, manage that process. Would the hyperlocals, in a sense, be in the driving seat in redefining what the code in the future uh, is? Or are there ways in which you want to involve wider stakeholders in that debate about the code? Second question is down in the front in the gray. And then we had the third question here. I'll get to you in the back Sorry. in the next round. 
Hi, I was wondering if you're... Um, hi, I'm Susanna, working PR. Um, I was wondering, how does an advent of the first independent press regulator going to affect, say, the healthcare sector? Are you going to specifically look at different sectors and then um, have different codes? Or how exactly in practical terms would a regulated body affect an entire sector, for example? Because as, as I understand it, do you have experience in that area? I'm Simon Kahn. I don't think I have any affiliations that are relevant um, to today. Um, Walter, I was listening to you on the radio um, about three hours ago uh, on Radio 4, and one of the questions, or the way you were introduced, I think, um, the interviewer was trying to be provocative in pitching um, Impress and Ipso as in opposite corners of a boxing ring. Um, and the thought occurred to me to ask... Do you see Impress and Ipso as um, competitors um, or do you see the two as potentially complements? Is there a world in which there might be two regulators um, regulating different parts of the industry or regulating uh, in any other complementary way? And uh, a second comment on the um, kite mark. As this is the 21st century, will it be available in different colours? That was three. Three? There's yes. another one somewhere? You've oh, had three. Got, oh, sorry, sorry. Yes, I have. Oh, dear. Um, the, um, but the first one was... Uh, uh, yours? The first one was Damien's, which oh, was Damien's. about sorry, um, yes, thinking sorry. about the consult. You're absolutely right. Hyperlocals um, and others feeding yes. into the process. Um, well, I, I, I understand again where you're coming from. We're going to do a public consultation. I'm sure that you will be a um, somebody who will take an interest in it. We'll try and get. I mean, this, this is the sort of topic that academics put their heart and soul into: public consultation on anything. Multiple codes. I mean, you, you said the public are familiar with. Um, how many members of the public here can recite the editor's code or can say how many thing, exceptions there are into it? No doubt Peter can do that, but you know, apart from him, um, uh, it's not the sort of thing... Sorry? <laughs> it may be, yeah. But broadly speaking, it's not a, um, it, it, in my view, is not the sort of thing that uh, you can expect members of the public to have a detailed knowledge of. And if there are different, um, slightly different codes um, that, um, are, that cover areas which, frankly, need to be covered because times have changed. I mean, uh, the, this topic that I meant, uh, the topics I mentioned about uh, the, following the, the phone hacking. Um, or the inquiries, the police inquiries that followed that, um, they, was, they were issues that uh, the code didn't deal with, maybe because nobody ever thought that, that would, those issues would arise. Uh, but they have done, and now you kind of say, well, what, so, so what, does a, what does the code say about these things? What are journalists are supposed to do in trying to obtain a story from a public official who they encounter who um, uh, are, are they allowed to take him out of lunch so, not slip him a fiver no so not a lot more 
It's clearly not. And our publishers, if they are um, subject to a major police inquiry, um, have, should they just hand over all their, uh, the sources of, their, uh, from, uh, uh, of the journalistic material from which they obtained and from those sources thought they were going to be protected and the, those journalists thought they were going to be protected? Um, there's, there are issues there. Um, uh, sorry, and, and your, your next question was um, about whether we were going to be going into the health regulatory area. Uh, no. Uh, this is about press regulation and regulation of publishers publishing news in the press field. Um, obviously, the press cover all sorts of different um, subject areas. Uh, we'll, we would certainly be very happy to, uh, uh, to have as a, a publisher a publisher that was publishing about the health, health uh, sector, like um, Health Service Journal or one of those. I mean, they're currently elsewhere, but we'd be happy, very happy to do that. So we, we're covering, we, we are delighted to cover uh, the whole spectrum of publications that, public, that publish news, whether they're magazines, whether they're sectoral publications, whether they're local publications, whether they're more general publications that, that publish um, material about, uh, that would be of interest to anybody. Does that answer your question? Not quite. I No, okay, well, I think the answer to that is no. We're, we're going to be a generalist, um, a generalist regulator, regulating publications or different sectors. Okay? Um, and uh, Simon, well, are, are we going to publish, in, uh, allow the impress? Um, we'll have a serious debate about um, colours of the impress mark. Um, it's capable of being reproduced in more than one colour. Um, major topic we will put our minds to that but IPSO and IMPRESS as compliments as opposed to um, Um, yes well the the serious topic there Um, are we going to be competitors no I I mean I don't uh, I've had I have pleasant and cordial relations with um, uh, Alan Moses and Matt T who's their chief executive Um, and I it, it seems to me we are bound to work together um, and we will work together because we are bound to get uh, complaint people ringing us uh, who have wrong the uh, wrong place, um, and uh, likewise, if so, are likely to get complaints uh, from uh, that really ought to be directed towards us. So we're bound to work practically together. Um, so that's a that's a start. And of course, we're going to need to talk to each other if we are using the same code. I'm sure we want to talk to each other about that. Um, you know, if, they are, if we're about to, we're considering a, an issue um, that maybe they are just about to consider, um, it would make sense for uh, us to be talking to them in a sensible way. So I see that it's uh, quite possible for two organisations in the same space uh, to, uh, to be to a certain extent, competitors competing for the publications that we want to attract to be regulated by us, um, but also to cooperate in the practical business of serving the public. Great. I know we had two hands up, and uh, I think that's um, in the back, all the way in the corner, and I thought I saw a hand up in 
Yes, in, on the side there. And uh, while we're getting the microphone, I actually want to um, put my question as well. Um, you talked about incentives for uh, these hyperlocal publishers to join Impress, and I'm just wondering if you could provide a little bit more detail about how that practically is going to work and whether the incentive scheme um, you've described i.e. the lower financial cost of joining this regulator versus another, um, will also require some sort of legwork or f footwork in actually developing relationships um, with the small publishers that you've identified in your strategic focus. So that's my question. Um, and we have a question in the back. Hi, my name's Ed. I'm from the Telegraph Group. It's just a quick question about the uh, Mosley money. You said you had security of... Sorry? The... Sorry. Sorry, the what? Telegraph Group. Yeah, sorry. You said you had security of funding for four years of yeah. 950,000. Yeah. Uh, I suppose it's quite an important point. Has that 3.8 million been given as a lump sum by the Mosley fa family? Uh, or will you have to go, will the trust have to go to them each year and ask for it? Or are they sat on the 3.8 million now? Uh, all I can tell you is that our guarantee from the trust is that we get our money over that period. Okay. In fact, we get it uh, in. in Six, quarterly, six monthly, six monthly chunks. Uh, so it's, it's like, I mean, frankly, this is rather like any other charitable funding from, you know, grant funding from a large charitable trust. Um, so they're not um, sat on 3.8 million? We, we are not sat on 3.8 million. But the charitable trust are? Uh, I, that's a question for them. I, all I know is we have um, that guarantee of, uh, that, uh, of well, the, that amount during the course of every year for the next four years. Um, okay. And uh, J.K. Rowling, have you got a figure for the amount of money she's given you or to the Charitable Trust? I do also want to make sure that we get our last questioner in as well. Um, uh, as far as I know, she hasn't recently given to that trust. Um, we have had discussions with her. Uh, and I'm Could we sure have a figure? Shrink Sorry? Could we have a figure? No, I, I'm not giving you a figure about what she has given. She hasn't given anything to, to that trust as far as I know. Okay, thank you. But she's given money to us in the past and has not ruled out giving money to... And, of course, this is a new framework of, of funding. Up until, um, up until the advent of the Press Regulation Trust, uh, people gave money direct to us, which I didn't think was a comfortable position at all. And I'm really glad that we have the buffer now between ourselves and the, um, the, the Press Regulation Trust, which can hold money and, and, and whatever money it's got, but we have a grant funding agreement with them, uh, which, as I say, acts as a, uh, an arm's length buffer. Uh, Evan Harris from Hacked Off. I mean, if Joe Rowling gave money, it's probably from the damages she won from Associated Newspapers, Peter Wright's paper that libeled her viciously, and she won in court. So, so it's from them, I think, uh, it could be said. Um, I've got a quick question about the code. The, 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 the Charter preamble says that body that seeks to um, replace the Press Complaints Commission as an equally useless regulator should... should shall, as a, in a preamble, put forward the editor's code. I don't think there's a duty on impress, if it's a more serious regulator, to do so. So you do have the option of not doing so. And I also wonder whether you might want to take legal advice on the position that the RFC are taking, because they have been known to make um, intimidatory threats that aren't really backed up 
by a serious legal position because many people would find it astonishing that they could um, put those sorts, require you to take a license for something that's so clearly in the public interest and, and is supposed to bind journalists by their own words. My other question was about your funding because there's been some interest in that. I assume the relationship you will have with the um, Independent Press Regulation Trust will be an open one. It won't be, there won't be secret meetings because if you look at the RFC that funds Ipso, there's no notice of meetings, no minutes whatsoever, and Ipso, Alan Moses, refuses to say whether he meets them, when he meets them, what he discusses with them, what he puts to them, what the outcome of those meetings are. It's completely secret. And I think people would expect that the relationship you have with the trust, which may be straightforward because you're going to, they don't control your articles like the RFC controls Ipso. One would expect that to be published correspondence, given especially that they are regulated, unlike the RFC, they're regulated by the Charity Commission. So a two-part question. Um, and my question about incentives for growing the network of... Well, the incentives, uh, the, 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 what, we, what uh, some of the, the, those who are steeped in this topic um, think of as the incentives are those contained in Section 40. Um, the ones that uh, incentivize uh, or give benefits to uh, regulated <coughs> publishers uh, but uh, uh, put pressure on uh, non-regulated publishers uh, by exposing them to the possibility that someone could sue them for uh, defamation or breach of privacy uh, and act uh, entirely cost-free. Um, so Though, and that has been described as penal or um, certainly un, an unpleasant position to be in if you were a, um, if you were a, a vulnerable publisher. So those are, those are the ways in which those incentives are potentially designed to work. And as I said, not, not entirely surprising to me that John Whittingdale's thinking rather carefully about whether or not to bring that framework into being. Um, otherwise, um, we shall be out there trying to recruit um, the publishers who are not part of Ipso, um, the one, or, uh, insofar as they haven't already made, made up their mind. Um, uh, and, and we've got a, a team that uh, is part of our team that is uh, involved in business development, uh, re- trying to reach out to at least 400 uh, hyperlocals that are involved in this game, and probably more. So my next question was about, where was it? Was it, was it you, Evan? Yes. Yes. Um, a relationship with, uh, with uh, Independent Press Regulation Trust, will, uh, will it be open? We will have to, of course, uh, be open with the Press Regulation Panel. Uh, they have to be satisfied uh, that our relationship with, uh, with our funder is secure because they have to know that we're gonna have, we have sufficient funding. Um, that's one of the charter requirements. Um, uh, and they need to, uh, to know that, it's the, that that money is secured in an independent way. Uh, so, of course, we'll be sharing that with them, and everything we share with the, um, I think pretty much everything we share with the uh, press recognition panel comes into the public domain. Uh, so uh, it, it will be an open relationship in that way. Great. Oh, sorry, taking legal advice. 
And if yes. you can answer that question in about one minute. <laughs> oh, oh, yes, okay. Um, well, I can by simply saying any legal advice that we have received is privileged and remains confidential um, uh, if we had uh, received it. Um, um, Great. Well, thank you so much. That was a fascinating discussion and a fascinating lecture. Um, Please join me in thanking Walter Merritt.